0: Remain standing if you would, uh, as we take God's word once again and look at Mark chapter seven, uh, verse thirty-one through chapter eight, verse thirty. I know this is a extremely much larger passage than I typically preach on, but I hope to have you out by supper time tonight. So, no, that's not going to be true. But we are going to look at that passage this morning. So, please take your Bibles and turn there if you would. It's on page, found on page 843 if you're using the Pew Bible. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sudan to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And, this, and his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Domenech. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And seven for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how exciting it is to be able to come into your presence this morning and to, to open your word and, and to hear what you have to say to us. Oh Lord, we pray that you would um, give us ears to hear eyes to see, minds to understand the things that are shared today. We pray this in your name. Amen. That's a long passage, is it not? Uh, Sometimes, you know, we approach the Bible with the mentality that if we're going to be more spiritual, then we need to dig deeper into God's Word, into the little details. And that's oftentimes how we do it. And we'll look at... You know, we'll parse out the different Greek words and and look at the different details. And brothers and sisters, there is nothing wrong with that. That is a great way to study God's Word. But the reality is is that there are times when we need to just sort of step back and get the bigger picture of what it is that is in front of us. Um, The bigger picture that the author is trying to paint in our minds. You know, sometimes we can get caught up in the, the trees and the details of the text that sometimes makes us miss the big picture of what the author is trying to convey and especially in the Gospels as we see the author sort of painting a portrait of who Christ is and, and if you were with us at the beginning of Mark's Gospel you recall that there's really three questions that Mark addresses In in chapters 1 through 8, through the chapter we're in now, he really uh, addresses the question of Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? Uh, Then he goes on and he talks about Jesus' mission. Why, uh, Why did Jesus come? And then finally, Jesus' call upon our life. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And we need to keep these questions in our minds as we continue to work our way through Mark. And, and to understand uh, what he's showing us, because Jesus continues to reveal to us who he is, and that's what he does here in our text today. The first thing we see in verses one through ten is the identity of Jesus, uh, the identity of Jesus, Jesus' self-revelation of himself, what he is conveying to the crowd and to his disciples, and and Jesus reveals uh, this. Uh, by feeding again a large crowd with just a little bit of bread. Now, let's just go ahead and get this out of the way because this may be something that you have heard from time to time. But some scholars, especially liberal scholars, want to say, well, this is not really uh, uh, another miracle that Jesus did. This is really just the feeding of the 5,000 that, you know, uh, they just changed the details a little bit. And it's really just one miracle that Jesus did. It's nothing more than that. Well, I I will say that there are definitely similarities between these accounts. But they are also very different as well. And the details are very different. Besides, I would say this, and I think this is the nail that sort of, you know, seals the coffin, right? Sort of, you can't argue with this. If you look down at verses 19 and 20, How does Jesus interpret these two miracles? He interprets them as two miracles. He said, when I fed the 5,000, what happened? When I fed the 4,000, what happened? So as much as we in our great earthly wisdom, as we pontificate great things that are beyond us, want to come up with explanations that are different from God's word, he is faithful to give witness to his word. This is a different miracle that has taken place than that of the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000. And there's a number of things that he wants us to see here as Jesus reveals himself to his disciples and to us in this miracle. First, he wanted us to understand that Jesus is the bread of life. Okay, As, as the second Moses, Christ consciously paralleled himself with the ancient father Moses. Uh, it was through Moses that God announced that He was going to rain down bread from heaven. Remember when He was going to give the manna um, we read in exodus sixteen fifteen they were thin flakes like frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, "What is it? For they did not know what it was. Well, this what is it um, is described as wafers made with honey in exodus sixteen thirty one And it became the staple that sustained the Israelites for almost 40 years as they wandered around the wilderness. And Jesus purposefully identifies himself with this manna, the bread of heaven. So much so that in his account, in John's account, in his gospel, uh, as he's talking about the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, verse 48, this is what Jesus says. After he feeds the 5,000, he goes, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that came down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh that he has given for us on the cross. So Christ is the bread of life. Second, Christ wanted his disciples to understand that he was not just the bread for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. If you, if you recall, it's part of the reason I wanted to, to read back into chapter 7 a little bit, that this has taken place in the area of the Decapolis. And while it doesn't really define at the beginning of chapter 8 where this takes place, the assumption is it's in the same area and we talked about how that is a, a predominantly Gentile area. But also, there was one thing that was interesting. One commentator pointed out that Jesus said grace twice. In other words, he blessed the bread and he blessed the fish. And, and I never caught that before, but this commentator was going on. And he said, pronouncing the blessing over the bread was a normal Jewish custom, but, but not to pray a second time for the fish. And so, but Jesus prays twice, you know, showing that this was a very different group of people. Evidently, Jesus was teaching Gentiles to thank God for their food. And so, Jesus is the bread of life, but he's the bread of life for everyone, not just for the Jews. That's good news for us, amen? Uh, Third, when it comes to God's provision, the supply always meets and exceeds the demand. When God provides for us, His supply always meets and exceeds the demand. And Mark chapter 8 tells us when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. And and in the same way, we need to constantly bring our needs to Jesus. And and he will constantly break the bread, as it were, and, and meet that need. But in verse 8, Mark says of Christ's provision for the multitude that the people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, you have to understand, the word here for baskets is actually different than the word baskets in the feeding of the 5,000. The, the baskets in the feeding of the 5,000 was just a smaller basket. But the baskets here were, I don't know what to liken a hamper, a tub, I don't know what. But they were a basket that was large enough for a man to fit into. And there were seven basketfuls left over. And so as we come to the completion of this miracle that Jesus had done, this event, the disciples had seen two stupendous miracles in which thousands of people were fed with just a few pieces of bread or loaves of bread and, and fishes. And so Mark tells us in, in verse, verses 8 and 9 that when Jesus had finished feeding the 4,000 that he sailed back across the lake somewhere on the east side of the sea, probably close to Capernaum. And that's where he met the Pharisees. So uh, if we see Jesus, uh, speaking of his identity, the, the second thing we see in verses 11 through 13 is the unbelief of the Pharisees. Uh, you really could say it's the hard-hearted rebellion of the Pharisees. Um, and that really, it was a sense of which the Pharisees sort of accosted Jesus as they came to him. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, you know, and, and seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, you might ask, you know, at first glance, what, what's wrong with asking for a sign? Doesn't a sign point to something to a reality? You know, we talk about that with the, the sacraments, you know, that there's signs and seals that, that point to a reality. And yes, that is true, but the Pharisees wanted a sign of, on their own terms. They wanted a sign of their own making. They were not willing to accept the evidence that Jesus gave. They wanted a sign from heaven. Something spectacular from the skies. And what the Pharisees were asking for was really very similar to Satan's temptation of Christ in the wilderness. If you think back to that account in Mark's gospel, Satan came to Jesus and he said, Hey, if you take these stones and turn them to bread, or you know, if you go up in the pinnacle of the temple and you, you jump off, you know, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. He promises these, these great things. He tried to get Jesus to do something stupendous, saying that if he would do so, then Christ he would give Christ all the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus, in speaking about this in Matthew's gospel, says that it is an evil and adulterous generation who ask for a sign, and yet none will be given. Now, why not? Well, because the one who demands a sign has the attitude that God, who has revealed himself to mankind, he's given his revelation of himself, can be controlled and judged by me and my mind. You see what I'm saying? You know, it's, it's, these Pharisees were looking at them, and they had such arrogance that they said, I could, I'll could, determine whether what God has revealed to us is true or not. They were exalting themselves above The word of God. In other words, I will determine what will be acceptable evidence to convince me. You know, even though Jesus had opened the eyes of the blind. He had made the lame to walk. He made the deaf to hear. He fed over 9,000 people with just a pitiful amount of food. He had casted out demons. He had done all these things. Jesus had given them all the evidence that they needed to come to faith. And so the Pharisees... Were without excuse, they they can't plead ignorance, nor can they say that God did not give them sufficient information to believe. You see, the problem is not a lack of evidence. They simply refuse to recognize their own Messiah despite the evidence that had been given. Because ultimately their attitude is one of unbelief motivated by carnal and fleshly pride much like that of Satan. Matthew Henry, I think, was correct when he said they demanded this sign of Jesus, right? Tempting him, not in hopes that he would give it to them that that they might be satisfied, but in hopes that he would not that they might imagine themselves to have a a pretense or a cover-up for their infidelity or their unfaithfulness. In other words, they wanted to be justified in what they already thought about Jesus. They had already rejected him, so they asked for a sign, knowing he would not give one, so that they could say, See, he won't even give us a sign, so he must not be the Son of God. No wonder we read in verses 12 and 13, And he sighed deeply in his spirit, and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no one will be given this generation, No one will be given to this generation. And he left them and he got into the boat and he went to the other side. Christ was angry with these Pharisees. You see, the eyes of faith don't require miracles as proof or to confirm one's faith. And and this is something we need to hear, brothers and sisters. I mean, how many people today rejected Jesus? Now, some may reject him as atheist or agnostic or or humanist and stuff. But there are people who reject Jesus every day because God does not live up to their expectations. God doesn't fit the mold that they made for him. And they say things like, well, I could never believe in a God who would allow suffering. Or I could never believe in a God who would do this. Or wouldn't do that. And, and, and because God contradicts their view of himself. They have exalted themselves to such pride and such arrogance to think that they could stand at the judgment of God as to what he should or should not do. And in their pride they stand in judgment of God and his word and determine themselves what they do and do not want to believe about him. We see that that Jesus turned his back on such people and he sailed away. And this is what he ultimately does with those who continually refuse his revelation of himself. Did you hear what I said? This is what he ultimately does with those who continually refuse his revelation of himself. Of himself. And I emphasize that, brothers and sisters, because today is the day of salvation. If your heart has been hardened to the place where you're like the Pharisees and you have stood and taken that arrogant position that I know more than God, that I can judge what is right. Today is the day for you to humble yourself and to turn to Him and say, Oh God, I have been so arrogant. I can't believe this. Forgive me of my sin and turn to Him and He will save you. Brothers and sisters, the ultimate time has not come yet, but one day it will. One day, Jesus, we will stand before Jesus and he will say, I never knew you, and he will cast you into the fires of hell if you do not turn to him and trust in him. You see, there is a time where he gives no more signs, no more help in understanding. Oh, let us not be caught in such arrogance as we stand before him one day. But what about those who, who do follow him? Well, that brings us to our third and our final point, the, the dullness of the disciples. Uh, verses uh, 14 through 21, Jesus rebukes his disciples, not as hard-hearted like the Pharisees, but as those who still lack full understanding of who Jesus is. You see, the, the Pharisees rejected Jesus and his teaching outright. The disciples were just slow to appreciate uh, what it was that Jesus was teaching them. They were dull. And so Jesus gives them a spiritual warning as he is in the boat, uh, which they misinterpreted because their mindset is, is of this world rather than being spiritually minded. We see in verses 14 through 16, now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the loving of the Pharisees and the loving of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Can you imagine that? Jesus is trying to talk to them about spiritual things and they don't get it. They might have been in the same boat side by side, but Jesus and his disciples were worlds apart in terms of what they were were thinking. And I can only imagine maybe how frustrated Jesus must have been with the twelve. They had seen the feeding of large crowds of people with very little food twice. And they still did not get who Jesus is. To a, to a Jew of Jesus' day, yeast or the leaven, you know, was symbolic of the evils of the human heart. And and the disciples would have known that. They would have known that a little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast, a little bit of sin, the evil of the heart, has a drastic effect upon the whole life, loaf much the same way that just a little bit of yeast affects the whole loaf of bread and cause it to rise. And so Jesus was warning them that both the Pharisees and Herod thought that if you show me a sign, then we could sit down and talk about it and I would determine if I wanted to believe in Jesus or not. And that the Pharisees asked for yet another sign when Jesus had given them plenty of signs, really showed how deeply the evil in their own hearts had affected them. There was just nothing that Jesus could do that would reach such a hard heart. And likewise, the disciples' propensity to worry about such trivial matters as, do I have bread or not? Um, When Jesus was teaching them about important matters of sin and grace, showed just how hard their hearts really were as well. And they were seeing but not perceiving. They were hearing but they were not understanding. Uh, Look at verse 18 He said, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the uh, 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? You see, in those questions, Jesus was telling them, that their lack of understanding was due to the hardness of their heart, to the dullness of their mind. Yes, they were followers of him. I, I'm, not, I'm not arguing that. But their problem was, is it really came from a sense of familiarity. They were repeatedly exposed to Jesus' teaching, but they didn't reflect upon it and they didn't act upon it. They didn't really consider, what does this mean? What does this tell us about who Jesus is? About his identity. And this caused a progressive insensitivity and dullness in their lives because it just got to be where they were taking in information, but they weren't processing it. They weren't meditating on it. They weren't thinking about it. They weren't appropriating it. And we experienced this as well as we failed to think and act upon what God has revealed to us in his word. They were not appropriating what they were seeing and hearing And so it was sort of a case of if you don't use it, if you don't use that which you brought in, then you just lose it. And it even makes you duller spiritually. If the disciples had truly reflected on the spiritual significance of the, the miracles, the feast, they would have advanced far beyond where they were in their spiritual growth. They would have seen Jesus as a wielder of omnipotence. They would have seen that this would have had to do with Him as being the God who has created the world and He has made all things and that there is nothing that Christ cannot do. The twelve baskets and even the seven hampers of bread taught that He was the bread for the whole world, Jews and Gentiles. The bread taught them that there was no life apart from Him. But the disciples didn't reflect upon this. They didn't think about this. They heard Jesus' blessing on the bread and the fish with their ears and and they mentally remembered all the details. As a matter of fact, they remembered it so well that when Jesus gave them the quiz in the boat, they were able to give the right answers. So they knew a lot about Jesus and what he did. But they had not spiritually understood. They didn't understand the significance. They, They had eyes to see They had eyes, but they did not see. They had ears, but they did not hear. They had minds, but they did not understand. And so the disciples were sort of at a crossroads in their life. And and really, Jesus was posing this question to them. Who are you going to be? Are you going to be like the Pharisees rejecting Christ's message, more concerned with outward and external things? Were you going to be like Herod, Who rejected Jesus' call to repentance because you're content with your sin and you don't want to give up your sin? Is that who you're going to be? Were you going to be like the masses that didn't know how to identify Jesus as we see him in verse 28? Or were they going to be his followers? Were they going to be insiders? Were they going to be those with eyes to see and ears to hear? Were they going to be people who understand the mystery of the kingdom of God as Jesus described it in Mark 4:11? Well, they would be his followers, but it would only come because of the work of Jesus in their lives. And, and that brings us to the story of the blind man, okay, in verses 22 through 26. Now, this isn't a separate point. This is under the, the point of the dullness of the disciples but the miracle of the blind man actually illustrates the disciples' situation, if you think about it. If, if you look at the sets of events that occurred in chapters 6 through 8, and you can go back and flip this afternoon and check me out, make sure that what I'm telling you is true. Uh, they Each chapter ends with miracles followed by a confession. and And it certainly is no coincidence that the miracle at the end of chapter 7 was a healing of a deaf man. And now, at the end of chapter 8, this second one was of a blind man. And, and the same senses that are spiritually dull for these disciples are the ones that are healed physically by Jesus. Do you see that? That alone should tell us something about what Jesus is interested in doing. He's interested in giving us spiritual eyes and ears. And he illustrates that with giving people new physical eyes and physical ears. And so that's why I wanted to include those passages for us to see uh, what Jesus is doing here. But look specifically at this uh, healing of the blind man in verses 22 through 26. Do you notice anything different from Jesus' other miracles? Yeah, definitely. Look at verses 23 through 25. He took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So Jesus tries it again. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Was Jesus just having an off day? No, no. Not at all. However, if you look at the bigger story that Mark is telling us here with the disciples, it actually makes perfect sense. It's actually a vivid illustration of what was going on in the disciples. That this blind man's healing needed a second take in the same way that the disciples needed to see the miracle again. They had seen the first feeding of the 5,000, but... They didn't see clearly after that. They didn't understand. we know that because Mark tells us as they were in the boat and Jesus calms the storm. They didn't get it. But they also needed to witness the miracle again. And then to be confronted with Jesus before recognition finally happened. And then the disciples saw clearly. And we know they saw clearly because the disciples, or Peter specifically, confessed that Jesus is the Christ. He got it. He got it. He understand. And so Mark is showing us how Jesus is working on the disciples' hearts and on their minds. He's softening their hearts and he's giving understanding to their minds. So just as Jesus gives physical sight and physical hearing to these two impaired men at the end of chapter 7 and the end of chapter 8 sort of like bookends, Jesus is giving true sight and true hearing to the disciples. He makes their spiritual dullness and ignorance. Uh, He takes their spiritual dullness and ignorance and he gives them spiritual understanding. And this culminates in their confession in verse 29. Now, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that that would happen. And I think we looked at this earlier in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. This is when the Messiah comes and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. And all these things were fulfilled in Jesus. We've seen all these things in, in Mark's gospel. Jesus is the promised Messiah. The disciples had finally recognized it. They had finally made the connection and put it together. They had finally confessed that the rest of the crowds, what the rest of the crowds had not seen That Jesus is the Christ. Now, as we come to Jesus this morning, where is your heart towards Jesus? Is it hard? Is it proud? Are you like the Pharisees, where you know you're going to determine what you believe about God based on your reason and your thoughts and you know what you think is right? Or do we come this morning, maybe we're more dull. Like the disciples. Well, I hope it's neither, really. I I pray that your heart is soft towards God. But you know, the reality is is that that our hearts are sort of everywhere, right? There are times when they are soft, but there are times when we're sort of dense and dull. And there are times even when our hearts begin to harden. And yet this story of the disciples figuring out who Jesus is should remind you That your relationship with Jesus is also going to be a journey and a process. As you get to know Jesus, you're going to acquire a lot of knowledge about him. But you need to move beyond just head knowledge. In addition to knowledge, we also need understanding. You need those moments in your Christian life where you have a sort of a spiritual, Aha! I get it! I now understand, I see who Jesus is. And kids, I want to talk to you because you are growing up in the church and your parents are faithfully teaching you and introducing you to who your God is. And it can be so easy for you to say, oh yeah, I know that about God. I know, I know, I know, I know. Well, really what you're saying is, I don't, don't tell me that. I'm not really wanting to listen. And that's a dangerous place to be. It doesn't matter what you know. It matters what you've appropriated, what you have taken in. And as you've reflected upon that, it's not has your knowledge become sufficient, but do you have understanding? Do you see who God is? That's one of the things I like about those devotional, uh, that devotional book that we're using, Be Thou My Vision. You know, you can't just rush through that and go through it like, it, you know, just, okay, I'm done. And I'm, I'm assuming it would have no effect. But if you take the time with that, and you read those prayers, and you reflect upon those, and maybe you even respond to the Scriptures, you know, and there's this dialogue between you and God as you are worshiping Him every day, as a family or as individuals, there's a change that takes place in your heart. There's a softening, there's a tenderness. There's a tenderness. And and as your heart grows softer and your spiritual eyesight and your spiritual hearing is developed, it will yield those times where you too shout out, Jesus is the Christ! He does all things well. But if spiritual understanding is a process, we should be meditating on what we learn about Jesus. That's what Jesus rebuked the disciples for that they had seen his miracles, but they hadn't really understood what they meant. They need to reflect more on their significance. They need to ponder them and to consider them. And parents, that's part of your responsibility with your kids. Is not just to teach them the catechism and scripture. Those are wonderful things. Don't stop. Hear me say this. Don't stop. stop. But in addition to that... Yeah, see, hear the echo? (laughs) So in addition to that, though... Take the time to make sure your kids understand. Probe into their heart to see uh, how it is receiving these things. But this is not something you and I do on our own to ponder and consider these things. Jesus is the one. He is the only one who gives us spiritual understanding. He is the one who opens our eyes and our ears, who enlightens our minds and invigorates our hearts In other words, we need Jesus ear-opening, eye-enlightening, mind-awakening, heart-softening, spirit-reviving love in our lives. That's what we need. And so let us pray for that, brothers and sisters. Let us pray for that. That God would do such a work in us. And He will surely do it if we ask Him to. And let us praise Him for the work that He is doing and softening our hearts to Him. Amen? Let's, let's just take just a few moments this morning, just have a time of quiet, a silent prayer, just as you pray to the Lord in response to the word that was preached this morning. Let's just take a few moments in silence, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for your Word that that probes deep, deep into our hearts, Lord. That reveals the things that we're thinking. It reveals the things that we desire. It, is, it reveals our will, the things that we will do. Oh, Holy Spirit, continue to probe deeply into our hearts uh, to reveal God. Uh, what we think of Jesus. Who is he? Not not what we say in the biblical religious answer if somebody asks us at church on Sunday, but Lord, who do we live? You know, how do we live? And, and what we live, how we live reveals to us what we think about Jesus. And what does our life show? And I pray, oh God, that you would take our... Eyes where we don't see take our ears where we don't hear take our minds where we do not understand we pray that you would change us soften our hearts O Lord that we would not be oh heaven forbid that our hearts would not be hard but Lord even when our hearts are dull we pray that you would deal with it Lord that we might know Jesus know his mission respond to him in the appropriate way as our Savior and our Lord Lord, we thank you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.